dystopian fiction has been moved to current affairs. Welcome to the seventh episode of Dystopian Fiction Has Been Moved to Current Affairs. You are here with your hosts, Marsha. And Claire, hello. And we are doing uh, another movie, uh, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, uh, the new Hunger Games movie, if that is correct. It is correct, although I have not seen the film, so this is going to be exciting for everybody. We're trying a new thing where I read (laughs) the book and Master sees the film, Mm -hmm. and then we try and put it all together for your listening pleasure. Yeah, a bit more challenging for us this time around, trying to patch in the gaps between what the movie has and what the book has further included. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yes. Um, but it's always, I think it's worked quite well because you went hmm. in to see the film without having the preconceptions of the book, which I think actually helps you to kind of view the, the film in its own rights, which is quite useful. And I think it's also raised some questions for us about sort of challenging the things that we thought were like respectively most important in the two mm-hmm. media. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, also between us seeing what most, what's most important, but also what mm. the filmmakers thought yeah. was main story beats to include to still get this mm. main uh messaging of the book across mm-hmm. um but i think the overall consensus especially among fans was that it hit most of the main points there wasn't anything that i don't know if we identified anything that they cut out that you you know you felt was quite important to have been in there or at least i had like mentioned no i don't think anything. that we've come across anything in our discussions where you've been like what what are you talking about that wasn't yeah yeah, yeah um yeah overall i think a lot of it is is similar i think we talked about some of the, the sort of detail of the stuff that happens in the arena being slightly different and that possibly yes. again is down to the the medium yeah the effect is the same but i i think due to the medium well i was sort of saying with the previous hunger games movie because it's from i believe it's first person from katniss in the in the books i'm so sure it was first person or maybe it was even then with third person yeah i I think it's possibly close third the same way as yeah i think it is close third but it still gives you the same impression yeah you're you're inside the head of a single character and that's the same with same with um with with Coriolanus um, yes yeah exactly yeah. which you can't really have a sort of voiceover within a film mm-hmm. to be to sort of explain mm-hmm. what a character's thinking I mean it's actually although however one example that I can think of where they do do that is in you I think we mm, yeah about. yeah but I think that really mm-hmm. works for that sort of show because it's almost like a dark comedy and having yeah. those voiceovers is uh, I, I don't know that is actually I can't really think of any any other sort of show or movie that does that you can think of that yeah that's a very good example I mean I'm sure there there must be others but yeah you're yeah, right I mean, unless be. you can obviously you know you can bring it out in in things like dialogue and in things yes. like you know obviously the sort of like facial expressions and things like that yeah but I don't think that given that there's a there's a conspicuous difference for Coriolanus between the things he says to people mm. and the things that he is actually thinking because yes. he's full of charm and saying the right things and, and so on that's mm. harder I would imagine to get across on on film yeah I mean shall we quickly summarize for the listeners that haven't yes. read nor seen the film or the book or mm-hmm. um whatever um shall we just summarize the plot uh I mean do you want to do it this time I could try and do it um so I, I, I like this book because I felt that it actually 
for me was quite a bit more nuanced in a way than, mm. than the main Hunger Games books. But this is the prequel. This is the one that takes um, President Snow, um, who presides over the Hunger Games trilogy, the uh, Pan Am in, in those later three books. Um, and here he is a, a young man, is in late teens, um, finishing off um, his schooling at a prestigious academy in Panem and he is part of a program where um, students are put in charge of mentoring the tributes in the 10th Hunger Games so this is sort of the Hunger Games are established but they are still perhaps fairly simplistic in comparison oh, with yes. the fully developed Hunger Games we see later on yes, so yeah. he mentors um, a a young woman from District 12, the District 12 tribute, um, his name is Lucy Gray, um, and he falls in love with or believes he has fallen in love with, uh, or at least convinces himself he has fallen in love <laughs> with her, and indeed she with him, helps her through the games, is consequently um, basically banished from Pan Am um, for cheating, um, and goes to District 12 as a peacekeeper. Um, with the idea of pursuing this relationship between them, um, but it ends with uh, that not happening. So, spoiler alert: she dies. He oh. goes back to Penem, and <laughs> um, and we get to the situations, I suppose, of of having some sense of the motivation that both behind, I guess, him becoming the character that he is yes. um, by you know those the later later period in his his older age. And also some idea about where, how the Hunger Games reach the development that we see in the later books as well. Um, yeah. So uh, it does all of those things. Um, yes. But in a way, the story is less kind of sensational. The arena is only one part of yes. a bigger narrative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they in the in the movie, I think they very much. We're sort of talking about the first, second, third acts. Mm. They have even title cards in the movie to say okay. part one. I think part one, the mentor. Yeah. Part two, the games, and part yeah. three. Ooh, I can't remember what the part three was called, but they have. Uh, maybe I'm. I actually I can't remember, but they had they had literal title cards to almost separate the movie into bits. It's the same as the distinctions in the book. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, they do the they do the same thing uh there but it sounds to me like there's better balance between the sections than what you were saying where you weren't very convinced by the um by the final yes. act so i mean i think we'll get uh, into mm. more detail yeah. about that later but do should we talk a bit more about Coriolanus as a character mm. and um i mean i think we also got to talk mm. a little bit more about the distinctions between the books and the film but mm. i think there's I think we found as we're talking about it that the way that Coriolanus is portrayed is there's slight differences. I think ultimately down to his core, he's still very much the same character. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, again, what we're saying with some of the issues with the film is that it's a lot harder to sort of um, illustrate his motivations as mm -hmm. a character and how he sort of operates on the inside compared to his outward going nature. Um I mean, I, I think I was talking about how at the beginning I found quite a likable character. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we sort of see how there's a clip at the beginning in his childhood during, I think, the dark days. 
during the war where he's sort of poverty stricken. We mm -hmm. just hear his, um, I think, grandma announced mm -hmm. that um, his dad's passed away, his father's mm -hmm. passed away. Um, and then it sort of cuts to a couple of years later where he's sort of getting ready for his, I think, graduation ceremony at school. Mm -hmm. um, and he's got a very friendly sort of relationship with his uh, sister and grandmother. Mm -hmm. I think there is a generally Cousin. seems like Cousin. Cousin, of course, of course. Um, yeah. Who's played by, yeah, also weirdly, but yeah, who's played by Hans Schaefer, um, who I'm a big fan of um, uh, in the movies. I think she, I think they could have really um, sort of made more of her character. In that. I don't know how much Tigress plays a role in the books, but... She is reasonably well-developed, but I think that there is a bit more potential considering... You know, she crops up again in the in the trilogy. Oh, does and she? yeah. So again, in a fairly sort of small way, but enough, you know, she 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 helps the rebels. Um oh, does she? and okay. so that kind of arc we sort of mm. I don't think I mean again, there may be I don't know whether there's um sort of fan canon on that development but <laughs> um but it is it is there um yes. i haven't read back since reading this one i haven't read back the the uh yeah, the other yeah. three to sort of pick up those threads but um but she's definitely there um no i think there's a lot of sort of easter eggs that i might have even yeah. out just because <laughs> yeah. I, I think I sat in the cinema being like, maybe I should have gone back and read the books and read the previous, mm. you know, re watch the previous films. But it was, I think it was still a very comprehensive story on its own. I didn't yes. necessarily feel, yeah. which I thought was really good because I didn't necessarily feel that I needed to go back, see all the context, sort of mm -hmm. refresh myself in the context of the previous films mm -hmm. again to be able to see this movie. So if you mm -hmm. have never watched anything about the Hunger Games, you know, the very basic bare bones of what mm. it's about mm. please please go watch this movie it's very entertaining i think i was mm. sat there in the second act during the actual hunger games bit like with my heart sort of pounding <laughs> heart palpitations it's like am i gonna pass out uh, it's very intense although that might have been a contribute you know so i think one of the things that contributed to that was there was some people just sat, sat behind me in the cinema just chatting their way through and i was like oh, oh. I know it's one of those pet peeves that I'm just like cinema. Etiquette. I know, awful. Honestly, oh. maybe it's like I don't know what it is. It's just like I was that person that turned around and gave them a dirty look, but yeah, it didn't seem right. to help at all. No. But no, it was it was one of those things. Everyone's been there, done that. Um, I don't know if everyone's been sort of either side of that situation, but that's a different story. Cinematica. We might get into that later. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I think which I thought. But going back to his uh, relationship mm -hmm. with his family, I thought it was quite an endearing sort of introduction. Mm -hmm. um, but you sort of saw that unravel as he got to his sort of prestigious school ceremony where the sort of, I think his main motivation at the beginning is uh, gaining this plinth prize, mm -hmm. I believe, which is a, a sum of money for the top student um, of right. that yeah. um, cohort, uh, which I think he was very much he's you know he's portrayed as this very good student mm -hmm. um very ambitious and obviously this is a huge sum of money for him and his family because they lost their fortune that i think um, is the crucial thing isn't it because yes. it's the scholarship that will allow him to go to university oh, without going to university he won't be able to proceed in the directions that he wants to but yes. then maintaining this facade whereby everybody other than you know a very few um sort of close acquaintances friends whatever um believe that they still have the money that goes with their um yes. name and their class so he's sort of i think in uh, this is an interesting one what you were saying about mm -hmm. him being sort of sympathetic or likable just made me yeah. think 
you know, I do think that there's a nuance here, not that we necessarily maintain sympathy for him throughout, not that I would necessarily want to sort of say that it gives us a sort of validation of the things that the capital does, but it does give us a good impression of the impact of war on both sides. You know, he is really traumatised by what happens in his childhood, by the war he experiences, um, by the fact that not just that his family lost things, but basically that the entirety of the capital was, you know, resorting to, to cannibalism and things like that. You know, oh, that wow. this was a really bad. Is that mentioned stuff. in the book? Yeah, it so, is. Uh, One okay, of his, he, he, he and his. Um, cousins see one of their neighbours oh, cutting the course. leg off a corpse. Oh, okay, yes, yeah, that was that's mentioned, that was I think, isn't it? A in clip the in the movie yeah. as well, yeah, yeah. But I didn't yeah. think it was. I I wasn't quite sure mm. what was going on because it was quite mm. it's quite difficult to see what was happening to mm. like the body. Yeah, and I, I think the the I idea do. is obviously this. Yeah. You know, well, it's one of the one of the sort of major themes of the overall thing, which we'll come back to, which is like the. I suppose the returning of people to the state of nature, to this sort of, you know, mm. state of, of complete sort of um, violence and lawlessness. And yeah, and I think there's a big narrative throughout the sort of story about what the like lengths humans will go to mm -hmm. survive, um, yeah. which, you know, really is brought out in the sort of observational way through, mm. you know, these sort of higher up people in the capital watching the Hunger Games and mm -hmm. seeing the sort yeah. of extent that these. Uh, tributes will go to to survive and win and sort of turn against their own people and um etc yeah but um no i i i i think we were gonna talk about how poverty is a huge thing mm, in this yeah you know it's a yeah. huge um topic within the movie um mm. and the book obviously the whole entire mm. narrative um especially in Sejanus's and Coriolanus's friendship. Yeah, um, and this is a really good one for looking at Coriolanus in general, mm. isn't it? Because we sort of said that he has these kind of two sides to him, which it sounds mm. like they get a little bit of in the film. You know, the side yes. that he's presenting himself as one thing, yeah. a lot of reference to his charm and so on. But mm. actually, okay, we're not talking about sort of devastating poverty insofar as they have no. a roof over their head but certainly um, in the yeah. book they're eating pretty huge house i believe like it's, yeah it's, it's and this like, is i think yeah. one of the issues is like the inherited house yeah um, but they're eating you know cabbage and he has no new clothes and um mm. things like that so this kind of facade of of luxury um yes and again i don't know whether they brought this out in the film but one of the things that leads him to be really desperate is the fact that they decide to introduce new taxes on these old properties oh. that he will no longer be able to keep the family home because, yes because i this is um, what i was sort of thinking now is mm -hmm. like if it's an inherited house i remember mm -hmm. later on in the movie they get evicted which yeah, was, was right. like, oh, yeah. but if it's yeah because they could they no longer pay the, the new taxation yeah on it um so you know again we we're certainly we're given every opportunity i suppose to to see the the way that which he has suffered but it doesn't affect his attitude, which I suppose is the thing that, you know, that really makes him unlikable. Um, there's, you know, he has a real, like, there's a difference in his mind between kind of his experience of poverty and um, there's a, a, a quotation that I cut from the book here. It says, um, 
it frightened Coriolanus this level of want. He'd been broke most of his life, but the Snows had always worked hard to maintain decency. These people had given up, and some part of him blamed them for their plight. Um, and then he says, uh, he shook his head. We pour so much money into the districts. It must be true. People always complained about it in the capital. Um, and then Sejanus basically goes on to say, yeah, but we pour money into the industry. The industry doesn't pass that on to the people. people so yeah. the idea of they're, they're kind of essentially indentured slaves. You know, they, they are in a situation where um, it doesn't come down to them they're trapped within the district yeah. as we know maybe that's sort of a you know bit of a commentary on mm. trickle down economics I well absolutely I I'm yeah, yeah particularly versed in like politics and the way that economics mm. works so yeah. i could 100 percent be just chatting mm. rubbish but um yeah no as you know i think it's also the sort of in the quote um the phrase is like it must be true because everyone talks mm. about it yes. i don't know whether yeah. that's necessarily like you know what the sort of government body is spreading and saying to yeah. convince people that you know to sort of appease you know someone who might so, someone like Sejanus who mm-hmm. is very you know I think has a bit of consciousness class consciousness mm-hmm. he comes from district mm-hmm. two but it, because his of his father's sort of um you know business and fortune mm-hmm. he's now moved to the capital and, and this is I think uh, a point of contrast between Sejanus and Coriolanus is that mm-hmm. Uh, Coriolanus has the status but not the money while Sejanus mm. has the money but not the status yeah. and that's yes. um yeah I, in, in the movie there's even a, a tiny sort of um quipple like conversation where Coriolanus is talking to his classmates he sort of you know he, they they know he has the status he has the family name still mm. others other sort of people that don't know that he's necessarily like living in poverty mm. um but sort of they talk about Sejanus's character and they're like, oh, you know, this, you know, this guy's sort of come along. And I think Coriolanus in the movie says, oh, I don't, I'm not friends with him. I just tolerate him. And it's sort of trying to also play up to his classmates Mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, have this sort of huge status. But I mean, it's it's interesting because in the, in the movie, it does seem like they're really good friends. And it's, I'm curious Mm -hmm. as to why, like Coriolanus despite his other peers sort of says oh I'm not really friends with him does speak to Sejanus does genuinely have this sort of a bit of a friendship no matter how superficial Mm -hmm. it might be why does he choose to stick around yeah so this is one of the things that definitely kind of you know it it flips around in the book Mm. how kind of you know how he views their friendship Mm. and I I think that from my reading what it comes down to is the fact that he won't accept that Sejanus could be his friend because he doesn't consider them to be equals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So although we get there's the moment where Sejanus turns up in District Twelve um, as a new peacekeeper, and it says something like, you know, Coriolanus had never been so pleased to see anyone in his life. You know, he genuinely, mm. you know, Sejanus is a good friend, but he won't accept that yes. because he sees Sejanus as something other as something you know that this well this sort of upstart nouveau riche person who's got um i guess a a fondness for the districts and therefore kind mm. of rebel sympathies it goes against all these ideals that coriolanus must have inherited in terms of his this this class status in the same way that he sees a difference between kind of the deserving poor and the undeserving poor and the you know the poor who maintain their dignity like he does and mm. the poor who have lost it um and are to blame for that in some ways and I think it's the same thing he can't see 
Sejanus as somebody with whom someone like him could be friends. Yes. And that is ultimately what leads him to just see Sejanus, although at times they do seem to be friends, he always reverts to the feeling that this is somebody he could betray or should yeah, betray. Yeah, sort of expandable is yeah. like a means yeah. to an end. And I think exactly. yeah, we'll talk more about Lucy Gray later, but I think it's mm. the same sort of, we talk about, oh, is he really in love with her? Or is it sort of mm. more of a, you know, objectifying view of sort of this pet to him, something that, you mm. know, he can use yeah. to get somewhere. But mm. we'll, we'll talk more about mm. that in a minute. Um, but yeah, I, this is, and I think this is also the thing I thought was interesting in the book versus the film is, like obviously me sort of sat there being like oh Coriolanus is is outwardly quite nice and pleasant but I guess mm. that's how sort of you know uh people who are sort of in these like upper classes yes. um sort of behave and that's you know that's mm-hmm. how they're taught to sort of be but and mm. then it's sort of on that inside it's very he's you know out there for himself he's mm. very motivated but to sort of an extent that he's willing to like betray his you know peers such as Sejanus mm. but there's uh I'm assuming also in the book and the film um there's the bit where his own classmate sort of tries to uh say that his own work is hers and that obviously mm. ends badly for her mm. where you know I think um so there's there's a bit in the plot where um uh the doctor the professor um Professor Gould, is Gould? Right? yeah, um, who's this sort of scientist? She's one of the game makers, and she sort of experiments on these animals and creates these hybrids. Um, you know, all very interesting and sort of dystopian. Um, but uh, yeah, so she she's one of the people who sort of uh, is she has she also pioneered this sort of mentor mentee. I like yeah I I think so and I think that this is this is another part of the sort of you know experimentation almost Mm. of the whole thing because you know again one of the things that we could say about Coriolanus is that he is himself manipulated he is manipulated by Dr Gaul Mm -hmm. and yes perhaps to some extent he chooses to go along with that Mm -hmm. because he sees that it might be the lesser of the various evils presented to him but you know there is a system here that you know he doesn't invent the system the system is already there and it's already manipulating him Uh so um yeah that's true but uh, we definitely see the worst of her with the with the whole uh assignment in the snake tank oh yes thing you know yes 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 yes. i mean yeah there's that's what i was going Mm -hmm. on to say is like this this girl is very again they're all very um sort of ambitious people Mm. uh but it's like the there's there's not even like an allyship in between the elites Mm. they're all out there for themselves which i thought was um you know particularly interesting and just i thought the i really enjoyed the the snakes and their sort of role (laughs) I mean, that's why I was like, oh, Ballads of Songbirds and mm-hmm. Snakes. I wonder why that's the title of the movie. But it all sort of comes comes more clear as it goes on. Um, but should we talk a bit about Lucy Gray? Yeah, absolutely. Talk about Songbirds and Snakes. Well, that's uh, mm-hmm. both sides of her. Um, so I'm really interested by this because Lucy Gray is... I think in the the books, there seems to be much greater ambiguity able to be created than from your impression Uh in the films. Yes. So we can tell a lot about Coriolanus, as I say, in the book we're seeing it from his perspective. We can tell a lot about him, how he treats Lucy Gray. 
in terms of the, there's a lot of language of ownership so it's his girl and so on a lot of language of how he is the one who is winning the games even though mm -hmm. it's actually oh, yes. life that's at stake no, um yeah. but there's a flip side to that for me which is that actually and it, it does come through although we never see lucy gray's point of view in the books we see enough of, of coriolanus's doubts for us to think that you know there is more to her than simply this version of her that Coriolanus wants her to be. Mm -hmm. So I think he thinks that, you know, she is, she is, he's the savior. Yeah. He's mm -hmm. the kind of, yes. uh, um, you know, the, the hero, the, um, I guess, you know, the, the privileged man coming in to, to save the day. Mm -hmm. But the first time we see Lucy Gray, she is in many ways already saving herself yes and i think that there's you know an argument that says to some degree at least she manipulates him just as successfully as he manipulates her you know there's all sorts yes. of reasons for getting yeah. a mentor on side they control the drones that bring them food in the arena they uh you know in this case actually you know control her surviving as far as getting to the arena um because they're locked up in a, a zoo so she's required you know reliant on the the outside mm -hmm. world and also of course this idea of kind of the audience vote and all of that sort of thing mm -hmm. which is just in its initial stages of course it become a huge thing later on in the sort of um in the later Hunger games books yeah but, i mean i i think it's a very mutually beneficial relation because you know, obviously, Coriolanus through Lucy Gray, you know, if he creates a spectacle for the games, gets more people mm -hmm. to watch, he gets mm -hmm. the pl plinth prize. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, it, yeah, and then, yeah. obviously, for her, it's beneficial because she survives and gets to live mm -hmm. the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. pretty big one. Um, but I, I was quite surprised when we were initially talking about, uh, you know, our, our sort of experiences of the story through the book and the film, because I didn't really think she had that much autonomy or the way mm -hmm. that she was portrayed in the movie I very much was sort of brought in the the classic phrase uh, you know manic pixie dream girl which yeah. I like to use this. um but I, I genuinely didn't really think she had very much autonomy whatsoever she was kind of this very um I think she was a very different I think uh, when her character was brought in she she was very different to the other tributes that were like shown on screen when the mm -hmm. reaping was going on and she you know threw the sort of snake at this the girl of the mm -hmm. you know um of the mayor of the yeah, like May 12th May district Fair, the Fair, that's yeah. yeah the mayor's daughter and then she goes on stage and you know says like sort of sings a song which is very different to the other tributes and it's very sort of like oh this quirky character she's got this mm -hmm. like gorgeous sort of Technicolor Dreamcoat-esque dress mm -hmm. um, and like I think maybe it's almost subverting how Coriolanus sees you know people mm -hmm. from the district yeah. especially people from District 12 um, and so it's, it's kind of she felt to me as I was watching it very much a plot device for Coriolanus's own character mm. progression and I think I, I when we were talking about what happens in the games um and like her actual actions mm. um in the hunger games she's very much in the movies for me i thought takes a pacifist role mm. where she doesn't actively necessarily kill anyone it's sort of coriolanus manipulating and sort of cheating and like you you know sort of using the napkin to give her a one-up on the snakes because mm. you know, so the yeah. the bit with the snakes in the movie is that and, mm. and the 
books in the plot um is that uh if they're exposed to to one person's scent then they're not going to be attacking you or they'll mm -hmm. be a lot more docile towards you so Coriolanus uses a napkin that you use to like wipe away one of the tears of Lucy Gray mm -hmm. to sort of mm. you know give her one up on that and then he gives her some I think uh some sort of rat poison uh in a sort of little compact um mm. Uh, which like she uses but I think she only brings that out really when she has no other choice to in the movie at least I think whilst um, you were saying in the books how she's actively sort of like smashing people's heads in with, a, with some sort of weapon is that, is that I can't remember what we no, discussed she's but... not okay so so this is really interesting because again I think mm. it's probably a little bit subjective but it certainly sounds to me like they've taken away some of the things that she she does as it with the rat poison does he give her the rat poison he gives her the rat poison okay so in the book he gives her the compact fully knowing that she has access to rat poison oh okay he takes the powder out and he basically hints that this is what she could do but he also basically is giving it to her as a, as a token as a thing to remember him and he's so that she can hold it in her hand when she's struggling in the arena and he'll she'll think of him it's all terribly sort of self-important sort of <laughs> stuff um but it's sort of i think it's partly it's kind of you know it's it's much more her choice what she does and i think that there is also yes okay she's not maybe as obviously aggressive as the kind of you know most violent of the the tributes who you know hunt in their pack and are, are obviously you know aggressive and use weapons and so on but i think she's almost i felt she was almost as as bad it's just that she is kind of sneaky and subtle with her her um her ways of doing things one is to allow kind of the others to pick each other off um and then then to use the poison in the ways that she does and she also um she poisons somebody with a snake she actively grabs it has kept one of the snakes and sort of smacks it onto somebody's neck a bit like she did in the reaping but obviously okay. with these with these killer yeah, snakes instead yeah no. so you know that is a particularly sort of violent yeah which I suppose, is, act. yeah um but, but that doesn't happen like I, I really don't see anything like that happening I think it just kind of works out in her favor all the other tributes mm. sort of kill each other and then no he he specifically puts rat poison in okay like, I mean I think that that's like a sort of mutual plan but um yeah. yeah it's they put down rat poison to to kill off vermin in the zoo or whatever that's where she gets okay. it from no she um, doesn't she doesn't he has it in his house I think like as he's like writing out or thinking mm, you know planning yeah. the games or his sort of like tactics he sees this mm. rat die and he's like oh i've got an idea yeah. um but yeah no and even with when she i think there's a bit where she uses a uh rat poison to poison mm. the water that mm -hmm. um some of the sort of the mm. main group of tributes are mm. going around the little mm -hmm. their little killing spree where she poisons them and then instead the girl i think with tuberculosis mm. goes up mm -hmm. to drink it so in the book does she specifically target the girl with tuberculosis is that correct? I think there is some discussion about that I don't I don't think that it's as obvious as that but okay. neither do I think it is as quite as um when the girl dies and everyone's not sure whether it's natural or or poison um I think there's a little bit of a oh well you know she'd just be putting her out of her misery or whatever but I don't think we ever see that kind of from Lucy Gray's perspective I don't think we see necessarily that she had you know 
people that she thought she should kill and people that she thought she okay. shouldn't other than so, other than the boy from district Twelve who gets the no ladies. so that's different so in the movie is very much that scene where the girl tuberculosis drinks it and dies mm-hmm. like lucy like a lucy gray is shown to be like you know she's she's in shock and she feels terrible and she's like no that's not what i meant to do it's sort of yeah it's portrayed as she was targeting specifically mm-hmm. the group of people that were going mm-hmm. around killing rather mm-hmm. than um you know so i think there was there was that um idea of who she wanted to kill and who she, mm-hmm. she wanted to protect but obviously yeah. her main um partner was like the person from district mm-hmm. 12 as well the other tribute from to district 12 that she went out of her way to protect and so yeah. you know they climbed into underneath the pipes and the sewers mm-hmm. um yeah i mean yeah. I, I think it's also interesting to see I'm guessing this is obviously an alternate alternate mm. universe in mm. you know the future um, of you know the current American society. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, I saw a couple of reviews where um, I mean, first of all, to say that the movie had very like mixed reactions from critics and mm. fans. Fans seem to really love it, whilst critics mm. were oh, I'm not sure about this. But um, one sort of thing that someone mentioned was the technology in mm-hmm. the future, especially in this sort of in the in um the ballads of songbirds and snakes, mm. is it's very I don't know what it's almost like eighties vibe sort of technology, which is confusing to see like the what's the progression. I think that what we need to remember is this mm. idea that this this reality um you know panem has grown out of an already increasingly kind of apocalyptic society so although there you know there's the war in the most recent history the rising up of the districts the idea um of the kind of creation of the districts um and the creation of panem has risen out of this um north america that has suffered from well what we assume are sort of the impacts of um the climate of um uh the reaction to that economic breakdown and so on um there was a quotation that i was uh reading to you just before this that might be well worth us uh, reminding ourselves of here this is the the thing that the mayor reads before the reaping to sort of um tell the story of how they got there Um, he tells the history of panem the country that rose up out of the ashes of a place that was once called north america he lists the disasters the droughts the storms the fires the encroaching seas that swallowed up so much of the land the brutal war for what little sustenance remained the result was Pan Am, a shining capital ringed by 13 districts, which brought peace and prosperity to its citizens. Then came the dark days, the uprising of the districts against the capital. 12 were defeated, the 13th obliterated. The Treaty of Treason gave us the new laws to guarantee peace. And as our yearly reminder that the dark days must never be repeated, it gave us the Hunger Games. So this is a sort of, you know, a vision of a way to restore order presumably for a really quite small number of of people we're told about the sort of all the destroyed cities that um uh are visible from the train for example Mm -hmm. getting out to the districts so you know um the great past of america has has sort of collapsed here Mm -hmm. i mean speaking about how you know districts were sort of set Mm -hmm. up and Mm -hmm. uh you know when you know the pattern was being created uh, I mean, it's going back to a bit of like Lucy Gray's character, sort of seeing how 
she doesn't even though she's a, a tribute for D- district 12 she mm. doesn't necessarily see herself as part of those people because yes. she's part of a i think like a, a traveler's sort of you know society group of people called mm. uh, the covey um but yeah I, I think that's in the movie i mean we're saying how the movie's great in sort of Showing a visual mm. representation of what the book. I mean, that's generally movies, movie adaptations, and all. It's true, but, but they are very um, visual films, aren't they? Like, yes, you know, with it, yes. especially with like all the fashion and the makeup and all that. Oh, sort 100%. Of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, Katniss comes to, dis- to the capital, yeah. capital from District Twelve, and being like surprised at the mm. like sort of you know all the these sort of mm. clothing and sort of almost costume like um, yeah. garments that the people in the capital wear, which isn't a thing in sort of. Coriolanus's time as a teenager. No, no, that's right. Yeah, Um, yeah. We actually see the beginning of it hinted at, I think, in terms of what Tigris does for a living because she is working as an assistant to um, somebody working in fashion. You know, she's a seamstress. Mm. She's sort of building into that world that is going to be part of the future. I think, yeah, I, I think it's a very interesting commentary on how the like gap between almost mm. the sort of societal social gap between the capital and the districts widen as the, yep. the years sort of go, yeah. sort of the disconnect. Nice, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, yeah, she didn't really consider herself part of those people, and in the costume design of uh, Songbirds and Snakes, um, it's uh, yeah so going back to the sort of dress that she wears throughout the mm. whole entire movie except from up until that she wins the point that she wins the the mm. games um she wears her mother's dress which is like repeated that's like, really important to her her mother's mm. dress uh i think her and coriolanus specifically bond over the fact that they're both orphans I think. yeah um but yeah it's this very sort of colorful gorgeously embroidered mm-hmm. sort of corset and skirt mm-hmm. um but it, that's very different to the dis like the rest of the people yeah. that we see in District Twelve in the movie who are just sort of wearing this like a, you know dramatized like a, a mining town you know mm-hmm. um, and it's very industrial and everyone's covered in coal which one of the things I was very confused about is why the peacekeepers were wearing these sort of like light blue you know light blue uniforms and they were completely clean whilst walking around this like <laughs> full covered dust soot everywhere i was like wow how how they must be some sort of technology of the feature where they well yeah yeah maybe that's one of the things that they did retain (laughs) after the war they managed to self-cleaning fabric literally i was like wow that's that's gorgeous even i think i walk to university and get more (laughs) dirty than they do throughout those films but um yeah i mean i think that's that's quite but uh, it's also interesting that um lucy gray's sort of position in district 12 are these sort of entertainers that's what the coffee mm-hmm. does and the people that she knows in the coffee are sort of you know they go to these bars and they sort of you know they put on these shows where everyone's mm-hmm. dancing I think there's something really important about this point mm-hmm. about lucy gray being other because i think it's the one thing that allows coriolanus to treat her as not just a girl from the district, which would oh, be yes. completely beneath him to ever consider being enough of that. But the covey is mm-hmm. is something different, it's something outside that. So he's almost mm-hmm. able to see past this deep snobbery that yeah. he's got to see yeah, how there's yeah, yeah. something other. But exactly, it also reflects yeah. something about the society that, you know, for him, it's important that he sees it as something different, but actually for the whole structure, and I think eventually where he gets to by the end of the story, um, the whole structure of society has it forced a traveling people to 
be bound by the structure that the capital has put in place. So the idea that you are within a district, you are confined to that district, you cannot leave, you cannot travel, you cannot leave um, the structure of Pan M, you cannot go north, even though that would seem to be completely harmless. The idea of, of you know, buying out of the system is equally kind of um, you know, persecuted. And we have the implication that, you know, Mayfair has somehow influenced her father into making sure that it's uh, oh, yeah. Lucy Gray who gets picked. But there's also something I think that almost that would be fine because she's not really a District 12. So, you know, wouldn't it be better to kind of mm. get rid of her in a way? So it gives us another layer to this idea of sort of you know, controlling that which is other, trying to box it in and therefore to control yeah. it. Um, and yes, the districts are strictly other from the capital, but they are a known quantity. They are controlled by the capital. And Lucy Gray doesn't quite fall within that, which for me, again, fits with this idea that, you know, she does, she is not what she seems. You know, she she has, you know, she knows exactly how to use, for example, her singing, her music, her kind of, you know, this this the appearance she has um, to to control people around her yes uh, which i think is less I, I now that you've said it i am like oh, that makes a lot of sense and her character i think is brought I, I think i see a lot more depth to her character now that you've pointed that out but but I, I, maybe it's a subjective thing but i really didn't pick it up that much in the movie i think it's it may like, just not be there i mean yeah, i can see how maybe. you could just not go there you could just not give yeah. that um yeah sort of which i think is quite it. yeah like quite an important i mean like i, I don't think it necessarily uh, changes the story of Coralie no. that much whether she has that more sort of autonomy and mm. control than she you mm. know the sort of manipulative part of them i mean i think i wish they did sort of include that i i thought sort of going back to a bit more of like lucy Gray's and Coralie's relationship mm. um I didn't feel like they really developed that, you know, there's this romance aspect that they sort of grow feelings for each other, but, you know, it's this sort of thing of does Coriolanus see her as a mean means to an end or does mm. he really love her? And maybe that's also an inner conflict that he suffers. Um, and then, well, when he goes to District 12 to become a peacekeeper, he sort of, um, I think there's a turning point for his character when he kills mm. the first person that he does, which is, I think, one of the tributes in the yeah. arena. Bobbin in the yeah um when he's off to save Sejanus and I think uh in I don't know if what is said about it in the movie but in uh, in the book in the movie I think it's something along the lines of he's talking to the to Dr Ghoul and he sort of says oh I think it's maybe he might have said oh it was both scary but very powerful Mm -hmm. I'm honestly probably need to look this up exactly Mm um uh but yeah I, that was sort of a turning point in his character and then after following that you know i think the number of people that he's killed is mm-hmm. becomes a point of conflict for him and lucy gray's relationship yeah. is sort of this you know very i don't know very sort of pacifist you know spread the love sort of vibe mm-hmm. to her even though you know i guess in the book that's a bit different she's you know sort of portrayed more manipulatively. she still has this sort of feeling that he kills mayfair to defend Lucy Gray and Lucy Gray kind of can understand that better than and in the same way she understands that he killed Bobbin because otherwise Bobbin would have killed him um and of course 
it's when she realizes that he was also responsible for Sejanus's death, death, which is a yeah. completely different situation. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, she can't accept of, that. She can't really, yeah, and that's kind of where, you know, she loses trust. But I, I think their just relationship was very brushed in the third act. I, mm. I don't think I really, when I was watching it, and there's sort of this big betrayal where, you know, she runs away, then mm. he might kill her. I don't really know. I think it's sort of implied, but mm. we don't really see her body. We don't or see her body, no. Um, but yeah, it's just it. I I don't think it really had as much weight as it could have if they did fully sort of develop mm. it. Because I think I was very on board with it in the second act, where the you know the sort of the Hunger Games are going on, and he gen. There was like I think you were saying even in the books you could see there was like a genuine sort of worry and a bit of a fear. I mean, it was. I think also just remembering what I wanted to say before you were saying how um the mentors were sort of talked about as winning rather than the tributes mm, yeah which is uh you know given the sort of games it kind of makes you think of like mm-hmm. the way that you know people might bet on horses or yeah. sort of and it kind of again sort of shows how the people in the capital view um people from the districts um mm. Yeah, but, it's like it's the, the owner, not the horse, that gets yeah, the, the credit, gets right? The, yeah, gets the yeah, credit, exactly. Um, so I, it's, I don't know, it's again very dystopian. Just, yeah, dystopian. <laughs> I mean, I think obviously one of the things that we really see is this development mm. of the games towards kind of the version it's going to be later, where mm. you know, this sort of capital mentor, student mentor thing is obviously dropped, and you know, winning tributes become mentors for. for later uh, tributes as yeah. we see with like um um Hamish and so on but there's also yeah the development of of the ways to make it a greater spectacle and to make people watch um all of which has come to fruition later on you know enforced watching um in the districts and uh um the the betting and the giving of of gifts to the um uh, to the tributes, all of which kind of stems out of ideas that Coriolanus and his mm. classmates come up with. Um, so that's all, yeah, really, um, I think, interesting. But there is, I think, this really interesting question about how much there is a relationship and yes. how much this is about Coriolanus, um, mm. regardless of Lucy Gray. So I was, I've been thinking about it because, you know, you sort of said that this sort of fast-paced final act, and I think mm. that it's probably a little bit, slower in the book by the sound of things but it's still unconvincing insofar as we are we always have those questions about the relationship Coriolanus is asking himself those questions when we kind of see inside his head um does he love her does he not and does she love him you know um he's very concerned that you know she'd have she'd have gone back to her um her old boyfriend just as willingly as as he'd have gone with her mm-hmm. uh she sorry she'd have gone with him um and i think you know it is an underdeveloped relationship they can't see each other very often because he's at the base and she's um you know at, at her house or at the hob and uh the only place that you know they can catch up is just like off stage and of course it's also you know again this feels you know very much like the infuriating love triangle of the later trilogy there's that very kind of um sanitized young adult element to all of this where it's you know they kiss and therefore oh you know this is this is profound love and and so on you know this is a really big deal but of course it doesn't become a more developed sexual relationship and so on for for the reader Mm. or the viewer um 
and so that can also I think feel a little bit unrealistic for us even though we're told you know all people marry young in the districts and so on and so forth it still feels you know kind of juvenile and so on but if we think about it more as a sort of relationship that advantages both of them the only reason that Coriolanus would ever consider going with Lucy Gray is when he thinks that he has absolutely no other option so while he thinks that the evidence that he killed Mayfair is still out there, the gun with his fingerprints on. Mm-hmm. He knows that even though he's got a ticket back to the capital to officer training and so on, um, he knows that, you know, he thinks he could be found out at any moment and executed. So he can't stay where he is. So he might as well go with Lucy Gray. Yes. From her perspective, she's going to be safer with somebody who knows how to use a gun. Mm-hmm. than she is if he doesn't come with her you know traveling in a pair especially with a, a man you know is going to be a safer option for her taking this mm-hmm. very dangerous journey so i can see why she would want him to to come with her regardless of whether she loves him or not until that moment where she realizes that if he can kill sejanus or mm-hmm. bring about sejanus's death then he could just as easily do that to her which of course is exactly what yes then happens yeah so yeah. you I know mean, I, it feels to me that you could just say, yeah, the love relationship doesn't feel like a thing because it's not a thing. It's, it's you know, there's no real betrayal because the whole thing was, was, you know, there was no trust in it to start with. Well, so this is, this is the thing I think what I found quite confusing in the third act is, so on one hand, he just had, has all these very conflicting motivations. So on one hand, um, you know, he gets caught for cheating, gets gets caught for cheating, uh, and you know, they train him into a peacekeeper and he pays his way out, go to district eight to go to district twelve to be with this girl that he thinks he loves. And then he sees Sejanus is also coming mm-hmm. with him, and as you were saying, there's a line in the book where he's like, he's never been so relieved mm-hmm. to see someone, and this, you know, and they even have a conversation with Sejanus about Sejanus wanted to go out and do some good and train to be a doctor, mm-hmm. I think. Yep, Something like right. that. And, you know, it sort of all sets out on a good foot, um, sort of good note. And then he gets there and he seeks out um, Lucy Gray, even punching her boyfriend in the face. Sort of like, you know, is, you know, ultimately, like, is he in love with her? He's sort of going above and beyond, even kills mm-hmm. Mayfair. So is that and like at the point that he kills Mayfair, what is his motivations then to to protect Lucy Gray because she sort of got caught in this thing to protect Sejanus to protect himself? But then would if he wanted to protect himself if he was out for himself and he was out there for for example his cousin and his grandma, mm. you know he, you know he wants to get back to the capital. He's offered mm-hmm. this chance to go back to train to be an officer, mm-hmm. uh, and that's like how he's going to slowly make his way back to the capital to. Um, help his cousin, his grandma. You know, he could just say he walked into the room, saw this was going on, report them all. And if that was like his, but then there's the conflicting yeah. motivation of Sejanus and and Lucy Gray. But then he sells Sejanus out with one mm. of the mocking jays and the conversations mm. that he has. So why does he do that if he's gonna gonna go above and beyond to kill like three people, mm. putting him implicating himself, implicating mm. everyone? It's just I think it's I know it's maybe it's trying. I, potentially in the books it's sort of explained as he's so conflicted you know obviously yeah I mean and he's so confused what he wants I think that there is you know I think we're genuinely supposed to think and this in a way you know makes it kind of much more much more subtle than it might be otherwise you know he's not just completely selfish 
-hmm. he cares you know as you said about his uh about tigress about his grandmother um he does you know show these moments where he cares for sejanus mm -hmm. and i think he shows moments where he cares for for lucy gray but i also think that for a lot of those things you can see that it benefits him as well yes so for example you know he kills mayfair it does have the added benefit of protecting himself yes but i think there is a little bit of a an arc where he's basically make a de making a decision about whether um you know whether there really is something with with Lucy Gray that there could be something better that he could get away from everything he's done and and so on, everything mm -hmm. that you know he perhaps doesn't like about the the system because I think he does you know he he obviously thinks that you know Sejanus is way off with his rebellious views but mm. he's not unsympathetic to the idea that you know the Hunger Games is barbarous you know a monstrous kind of thing I think we do see that but. I think he chooses again i think it comes a lot back to this idea of the system when he has a choice to restore his status yes it will benefit his grandmother and and cousin but largely it's for him he can go back to being the snow yes. the person that he's expected to be the person that lives up to the expectations of his father for example mm -hmm. dead father looming over all of this um as something that he can never quite live up to and that's why i think that you know ultimately it kind of pushes him down that slippery slope where he's willing to yeah to kill Lucy Gray. What I think is inconsistent for me is he's. I think what you were saying, and I, I, you know, the more I've sort of spoke to you, how he was portrayed, spoke to you about how he's portrayed in the book, is he's sort of meant to be this very calculated, almost cold in his sort mm. of decision making. But maybe, maybe in sort of third act, it's meant to be a bit of this breakdown of like, mm. as he's experiencing more of the world, you know, he's left maybe the capital for the first time. And maybe mm. I think that's, you know, what's happened, you know, he's gone to District 12, maybe he sympathises with some people, you know, he's sympathising with Lucy Gray, he sort of realised, you know, he might care more about these people. I'm sort of maybe trying to explain it to myself, trying to mm. sort of understand why these decisions were made in the storytelling, but... Yeah, I don't know, maybe it's a bit of a breakdown of him being able to be so calculated and so sort of mm. self-sufficient. That is why he sort of stumbles and trips up and makes these mistakes. He loses Sejanus, he loses Lucy Gray, but at the mm. end of the day, he does go back to the capital. And it was all sort of, do you think there's a bit of a commentary of like how people with status, people with money, I think there's a big thing that, a big uh, conversation that Coriolanus has with, Sejanus about how his how Sejanus's father will just buy him out of all of these mm -hmm. situations of him getting in trouble whilst Coriolanus can't do the same but at the end of the day he does get away with everything he kills a bunch of people yeah. you know he you know kills this you know ultimately innocent girl mm. ultimately sort of innocent well-meaning Sejanus mm, um, yeah like and he just gets away with it and gets to end up just going to study in the in a university that he always wants to study in like mm, uh, yeah uh, I think that I suppose that there is something here about, yeah, that contrast between Coriolanus and Sejanus, because to say Sejanus has this kind of opportunity to basically, you know, buy himself out of anything, but he hates what his father does with his money. You know, his father mm. basically, you know, buys Sejanus into things that he doesn't want, like being a mentor, for example, um, which he doesn't want, especially because he has to mentor somebody he actually knows, which is just horrendous. That's awful, yeah. Um, and I think that there's that in that contrast. You know, Sejanus kind of understands the reasons why the system is is problematic from one side of things. You know, Coriolanus is. You know, we can't accuse him of sort of you know abusing just his 
his money, for example, because he doesn't have any money. You know, that's very obvious. He has to, you know, he actually sort of steals money from Sejanus at the end after Sejanus has, has died. I don't know whether that happens in the uh, the books, but you know, literally he he has to get by our kind of charm and personality and and who he is and and yes. so on. Um, and of course, he's helped out by Doctor Gaul, who basically sees him as a useful asset for being a future game maker. So that's you know basically manipulating Coriolanus for the system but Coriolanus also makes those choices and I think that you know we can't sort of wipe away all sort of blame from him and I think we might also say well you know he's he's 17 years old I think at the beginning of it all so you know there's there's some sort of adolescent coming of age element to all of this as well that you know he kind of has to make decisions about what person what kind of person he wants to be as he as he grows up as he goes off to you know university or not and and so on um but i think that he he almost seems to he's guided into accepting the system mm. in a way that in the book we see kind of the different assignments that he writes for dr gall and the way that he kind of struggles with them and the way that she kind of guides him into seeing the world in a certain way and that's just another part of of all the strands that come together to make him go back and be part of that world. I mean, that might lead us on to a little bit of a discussion about the sort of this big question about what are the Hunger Games for, which comes yes. out um, uh, quite a lot uh, in, I think, both the film and uh, very obviously in the book. Um, which I suppose for readers of the trilogy is something that, you know, is is very relevant. Um, but it also, I think for me, is the, the thing that, yes, it's always helpful for us to read these sort of stories that focus on individuals and what you mm -hmm. as a kind of individual can do to um, uh, to challenge um, bad systems and so on. But here we're seeing actually a system that has already been created and that that goes on right the way until, you know, Katniss fires her arrow at the um end of um the trilogy and even then we sort of get the impression that it could just as easily go on in another form then so I mean, one of the questions i wondered about is do you buy into this idea that in a situation like the hunger games or a situation of um i guess societal breakdown which the mm -hmm. hunger is kind of a microcosm of people do turn into kind of animals yes i mean <sighs> I, yeah, I think we were talking about earlier about sort of like the, you know, they play around with the idea of like the lengths that someone may go to mm. to survive, yeah. and and also, and then sort of you know we're sort of reduced back to our animalistic sort of mm. nature, um, and on top of that, just the way that even the way I think that the capital views districts as mm -hmm. sort of almost again also animalistic, like lower than them, yeah. sort of the lower yeah. species. A sort of different there was a good quote from the book in the zoo mm. that i think is is oh, worth oh quoting gosh, there the zoo, of course yeah, so okay, yeah. you know, we, the metaphor is is, oh, is metaphors... more than hammer tame there <laughs> yeah. but, um there's a, a little oh. bit that says um a little girl marched up beside them and pointed to a sign on the pillar at the edge of the enclosure it says please don't feed the animals they're not animals though says the janus they're kids like you and me they're not like me the little girl protested they're district that's why they belong in a cage Oh. so you know it's yeah. <laughs> that that sort of that idea about kind of making people animals because you believe they're animals and then mm -hmm. believing they're animals because 
that's how you've made them seem I think is a really big part of it yeah Um, I mean also I was gonna bring up so I think we had a bit of a conversation about in the movie I think in before the game start the arena that the mm. um that the like uh tributes are going to be fighting out and uh gets bombed which I yeah. think so does you know the the government body the capital says it's the rebels it's the rebels mm. that bombs the 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 arena which um so and here was I sort of went into it thinking oh they're going to rebuild it but the mm. Hunger Games go on in this sort of very like torn up arena um and um those a couple of questions of if it was the rebels they were sort of they were putting their the, the like lives of the tributes mm. at risk which sometimes you know okay if you're forming a sort of revolution some people have to sort of act smarter and sort of die mm. for a greater cause a greater good but then I think we also theorized that was this the capital was this the government who basically sort of targeted their own um mm-hmm you know to basically continue keeping this war going to basically give a reason to uh give a reason to keep these hunger games going as a sort of you know and making an example Mm -hmm. i mean this is again going back to the reason for the hunger games is to sort of keep the peace i'm saying in quotation marks um but sort of yeah sort of say sort of explain to the districts like what the consequences are of their Mm. uprisings and um but yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, sort of... I mean, I, I, again, I think that this is, you know, I, I completely agree with you that I would buy the sort of this bomb theory, the idea that because a lot of this, I think, is, you know, we're supposed to believe that this is you know, serving as a reminder of what could happen if, you know, if war ever resumed, if the dark days resumed. Mm-hmm. But of course, it doesn't do that. I mean, it. No it's it's penal for one thing and it targets children which of course is sort of saying that the the next generation is is liable for the same things that their parents did you know they're they're just as much of a a risk the uh the districts are always a risk um so there's that there's and i think that you know in the books there's quite a lot that actually dr gall particularly sort of expresses this idea um that war doesn't go away she says um uh let's consider for a moment that the war is a constant the conflict may ebb and flow but it will never really cease then she says uh you know you're saying it can't be won let's say it can't said dr gore what's our strategy then so that would suggest that you know this idea that this this conflict uh, in ideas at any rate between the districts and the capital is is always ongoing but you play out the actual fighting as it were within the arena just to remind people that basically the capital always wins because even if one tribute survives the capital's the only one that benefits in any way from it mm. and that you make it into a spectacle you make it into something that um essentially kind of removes the like removes the the violent urge in places in a certain way and says oh look these people will just become you know they're fundamentally animals who when it comes down to all they are is is violent killers even as children so you know you should keep your feelings about the districts they're just as bad as you think they are and one of the things that you know i don't think we've got time to go into a lot of depth here but i do think Mm -hmm. it's really worth mentioning is um all the classical references i mean you'll have noticed with all of the names coriolanus mm-hmm. and sejanus and so on that uh, you know they're mostly roman names but some mm-hmm. um greek names as well but the name of the 
the city, Panem. Do you know what the Latin? Here we go. Test. Gosh. How much have you forgotten? Panem. Oh, absolutely everything. <laughs> Panem. Oh, like like bread. 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 Good. Okay. So it seems a bit weird. It seems a bit weird until you think about that. This is a very famous uh, Latin phrase. Panem et circenses. Bread in circuses. So the city or the state or whatever it is, the state is called Panem, which is the flip side of what they do, which is to put on a circus, to put on circus. circus games. Because, and it's particularly true in this book, because the spectacle is actually held in an old amphitheatre. So it's exactly like the idea of um, what the Romans did by putting wow. prisoners in uh, enslaved people and so on into the arena yeah. to make a spectacle out of their deaths and the idea that this in some way almost reduces other sorts of conflict when you can see that conflict being played out in front of you as entertainment um so that i really thought was was sort of relevant and the other thing that struck me was that um we get this idea of a society that controls an, an enslaved people because effectively the people of the districts are enslaved they're enslaved within the system even yes. if they you know even if they um have access to, to money and so on they're still enslaved people and that reminded me of the idea of uh, the culture of sparta bearing in mind that the culture of sparta um has been used as uh, a sort of basis fifth century sparta as a basis for um a lot of utopian ideas including utopia thomas more's um, book utopia where the word comes from um and the spartans functioned very much like pan em does mm. insofar as they were uh you know a society where the enslaved helots vastly outnumbered the spartan citizens mm -hmm. but by keeping them constantly in a state of war they kept control of their system based on slavery and uh, yeah. and the enslaved people um in spite of the fact that the numbers were against them. Now, the Spartans did it by making sure that every single male citizen was trained as a soldier from the age of seven mm -hmm. um, and formed part of a constant army. That was their job for life. Um, whereas the Hunger Games says, well, let's see what we can do with that idea by not actually fighting ourselves in a war, but basically transferring that war to this this arena, this spectacle. Mm -hmm. um, just to, to sort of say that in another direction, I think it's another element of dystopian fiction that's become really interesting. Um, I've thought of three things, but there are probably many more um, that um, that do this. One was um, Squid Game, which obviously mm -hmm. has, uh, you know, the idea of uh, a game show where you, you know, literally kill people, uh, oh, which of course yeah. has now been made into a game show an actual game show you know okay they're not actually killing people but it's still the most twisted thing that i could possibly thinking of i mean the whole entire point of the like squid game was the way that they got people to play it is they chose people who were like in financial debt or had a lot of like financial... i don't know if that's how the actual game show that the but it's the fact that they've it's so tone deaf yeah maybe 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 they'll be the hunger games soon and uh you know they'll actually be killing people in the uh, yeah literally um... sorry i was just gonna say i think the the dean made a sort of comment at the end um where he's sort of talking about how coriolanus sort of helped the you know um sort of institution of the hunger games basically continue because uh you know you managed to make a bigger spectacle mm. out of it more like people watched it and you know there was a, a sort of greater investment in the games um and the dean sort of says it's you know you've basically proven how much people are willing to pay to 
mm-hmm. to be able to watch yeah. a spectacle yeah. or be entertained. Or There's a very good book out uh, this year um, called Chain Gang All Stars, um, which I would um, mm-hmm. thoroughly recommend to to listeners, and we'll probably post about it at some point on um, our instagram but that takes the idea of basically reinventing the gladiatorial games uh for um american um prisoners who are on death row or on um have a life sentence can instead basically enroll to be part of an arena game fight that fights to the death it's like a a sport um so you know you've got a chance of of living longer and ultimately a chance potentially of being freed if you kind of win overall um and i think it's very very current and and relevant to the american system it deals a lot with ideas around uh, race and poverty and um and crime but um another one that is for those who don't want something quite so sort of you know heavy going um is there was an episode of doctor who in maybe the I think it was a I think it was a Christopher Eccleston one but it might have been a David Tennant one I don't know mm-hmm. but anyway we're like big brother mm-hmm. when you get evicted you get evicted yeah. in life right yeah oh god people want to watch this stuff and you do wonder you know whether and I think the Black Mirror played around with some similar ideas mm-hmm. you know this idea people would want to watch this right they'd want mm-hmm. to um you know it's only only a few steps further from watching people being humiliated in the jungle or whatever so um you know the ending for Nigel Farage that would be nice mm. uh, but uh, yeah. anyway so just I think it's interesting this idea that people will they will engage with something absolutely abhorrent because it's happening to somebody else and it makes them feel safer or better yes yeah that I think is at least one aspect of what the Hunger Games does and would you say that's sort of the final like in terms of sort of final thoughts and final messages i mean is there anything else that we need to say before so i mean the one thing that perhaps we haven't talked about which just leads on from it um is something that gets mentioned um implicitly a little bit explicitly in the book which is the idea of the social contract oh yes i mentioned it because again you know it's there in the book because it's really in the um in the epigraph they uh suzanne collins has listed quotes Mm -hmm. from uh from Rousseau and Locke Mm -hmm. and hobbes i think all people who talk about this idea about you mm-hmm. know, that at some point we buy into um, a system whereby we say we'll give up certain aspects of our liberty in order to live within a society under law and that this is something mm-hmm. that is implicit but of course in Panem it's actually explicit because like society fell yeah. apart and then they rebuilt society as it is and they have these laws and treaties and the treaty of treason that leads to the Hunger Games and so on but I think it raises real questions again about like how does this how does this system work and where can we see it having the you know real world sort of reflections which is the idea that when society is this legal system is built in such a way that in fact it does not benefit society as a whole mm-hmm. you know you yeah. like utilitarianism would sort of say that well yeah if it benefits most people then then that's acceptable in sort of the social contract but this is yeah. a very good example of where it really doesn't benefit most people um nice. and i think we were saying before about the fact that it's a little bit unusual for an american book to be based so much purely on kind of ideas of class not just wealth oh, yeah. but class which feels like a very yes. british issue class. um yeah you know and it doesn't although the film is perhaps more sort of diverse there isn't an issue around kind of the racial consequences other than the idea of the kind of the covey being 
particular outsiders mm-hmm. um but almost yeah. i suppose the districts become kind of ethnicities in a way the sort of groups of people um so i just wondered if you had any sort of thoughts about this this kind of what is what is it that is wrong with pan am oh god there's so much <laughs> okay um because we know the districts rise up we know that the yes. capital so what was the original reason for them rising because obviously there is at the second time because of the hunger games and the continued sort of abuse that that's yeah. the second time that they rose up and they're like successful mm. and sort of like creating a revolution but what's the first reason like is that still because they're enslaved and sort of i mean that would make it... the most sense wouldn't it the idea that yeah. there is okay i suppose as you were saying at the beginning that they um the privilege and wealth of the capital is not only does it not trickle down to the people in the districts, you know, the people of the capital own the industries. And as I say, you know, if you're trapped and the only employment that you can do is to um, work for that industry, that's indentured slavery, right? So there's, you know, that that's something that you could imagine you would want to rebel about. Well, I guess that's down to the root what what is the issue and i think it's the the treatment of people in the district as if you know if they're not given equal Mm -hmm. sort of rights or like i think they're sort of seen as second-class citizens and it's that idea of like survival these people are living in sort of very poor conditions in the districts and they're not exactly that is they're not getting that sort of trickle down Mm -hmm. of um sort of money or um sort of mm. investment that the capital says they're putting and yet we know from plinth that yeah. you can kind of rise up and become wealthy so, in the district but that's so... the question is i wonder how plinth you know managed to procure such wealth is mm. I don't, how how did one so for, uh, using him as an example mm. you know so Janus's father as an example how did he manage to procure that and move up yeah well and but i is that also sort of talking about you know maybe this sort of like a narrative in capitalism about like if you work hard mm-hmm. you can become yeah. the next millionaire yeah. and if you work hard you can do this and yeah there are even in like our you know sort of capitalist western mm. society there are success stories about people who create their own businesses mm. and suddenly become these entrepreneurs very like mm. rich people but that's not and that these are they're sort of shown as these like sort of poster boys yeah, of like absolutely or, you know, women yeah. or whatever yeah. um generally just sort of like you know sort of put on a pedestal as like this could be you mm. you know you yeah. could be the next elon musk mm. but that's just yeah. it's not realistic for everyone and you know there's like different people start off on different levels but it's also it's that sort of thing of uh, obviously as you rise up through the districts they become mm. sort of Better, better and more like right, well yeah. caps basically like for example plinth like sir Janus's father is from district two yeah. as compared yeah. to someone who's from district 12 who yeah. well, is there a sort of story where someone from district 12 reaches mm. the capital probably not i don't know so no you're I right guess, and i suppose yeah. it because also because of the sort of industry perhaps there you've got particularly this idea you know it, it does mirror you know again um sort of the idea of coal mining um and mm-hmm. um the the dangerous dirty kind of work that it is and yeah. of course you know we think about the history of of mining in 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 this country then we know that it's been at the heart of kind of ideas around um around workers rights and and that sort of thing back yeah. in the days when the coal mines yeah. were open um so you know it, it there are various things there aren't there that are worth um considering i suppose in terms of 
how yeah how a society reaches that point i've talked before about rules and um uh john rules and his his idea around the social contract and one of the things that he sort of says about the sort of uh, acceptable social contract is it has a thought experiment and the thought experiment is that you um imagine that you were um stripped of all knowledge of um your own identity in terms of your um your wealth your skill set your um level of disability your religion whether you were part of a minority or not and you were in that state of of unknowingness ignorance about the truth of your situation you were asked to um basically make a, a constitution for a fair society so what you would what he thinks that most people would do is they wouldn't hedge their bets they wouldn't bet on being in one of the top people in society and therefore say that they deserve better they would basically say that um you know i think that i might there is a risk that i might be in a minority or i might be less wealthy below average wealth i might be disabled and therefore they would prefer to say that in society if they were choosing without knowing who they were going to be in society they would choose for the um i suppose the 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 fair level of good in society mm-hmm. to be that much lower whereas in i suppose the real world when people make social contracts then they're thinking mm-hmm. entirely from their own experience they don't consider yes. the disadvantages of other people um and that might be a way of kind of you know, reflecting on on how pan Am might change for the better if yes. it wasn't so sort of that top-down idea but mm-hmm. on the other hand it's a very very artificial dystopia so <laughs> what is your takeaway then i mean i mean as always lots to lots <laughs> to think about um i think there's a lot to say about um human nature i think is mm-hmm. sort of one of the main themes that i definitely took away from and like this idea of like survival and when people are put in a position where they have no other choice to do something they will do you know sort of a go to great lengths to protect what they want to protect and you know and also i think the i think the there even though i sort of complained a lot about the inconsistency in character mm-hmm. it does demonstrate i think almost a realistic way of people's thinking especially mm-hmm. it's like Coriolanus can't mm-hmm. seem to decide what he wants I mean considering he is a teenager he's meant to be what mm. 17 18? I think 17 when it starts um, yeah something like that yeah you know, I school. mean I think it's it's just a very sort of I think you know it talks a lot about human nature um mm. and also and also just the way that I think how depending on how governments and central governing bodies treat their sort of citizens Mm -hmm. and yeah i mean there's a lot about capitalism and how like money drives people's motivations there is yeah um but at the end of the day just sort of understanding that i think there's a bit of a ticking time bomb on Mm -hmm. like people's patience especially if your whole entire society is built off Mm -hmm. industries that are run by these sort of so-called lower class citizens Mm -hmm. yeah as a as we know in the the following books there will be an uprising yeah that people will eventually reach a breaking point before they realize you know something has to change um but yeah I think even though it's a very exaggerated Mm -hmm. representation of you know things that could really happen in society I think I think having those metaphors that are very just point blank and blunt Mm -hmm. is 
is important to illustrate you know something yeah. that can be more complex yeah but I think that's um, sort of my main takeaways from it yeah I think that that is, that is yeah a really valid um set of observations and especially this idea I suppose um yes of systems that are built upon the kind of increasing oppression of the the worker and the way in which if a society does start to fall apart and we obviously see those kind of references to a climate crisis leading to war leading to the reassertion of these much more kind of authoritarian vision of society mm -hmm. um that sort of idea that when somebody promises to save you as a society i think you have to be very careful what you wish for how much liberty would you give up for order mm -hmm. um because that's ultimately what that society sort of says people would do um until it's too late yeah yes there so, we go also top tip always carry a snake when in difficult situations <laughs> very handy main takeaway <laughs> that is right yes so. general life tip <laughs> Are releasing this episode late owing to the fact that I have been ill all week and so we apologize for that but here it is <laughs> so following this week um, of illness and rescheduling and so we're going to make some general changes to our scheduling so um, this episode is going to come out on Sunday the 3rd of December um, we will be releasing on Sundays going forward so your next episode will be in two weeks time and we've also made some small adjustments to um what we are doing uh when so we are going to do the children of men um the novel by pg james and the movie um mm -hmm. in a combined discussion on uh the next episode on episode eight in two weeks time um mm -hmm. And we are going to do the society, which we had scheduled for that two weeks after that. We'll also mm -hmm. be taking a break uh, over Christmas. Um, so that will impact on our recording schedule slightly. Um, but you can see that um, on the website, um, mm -hmm. which is um, our Podbean website, or you can see it at beingsociety.com. Uh, and we have a new Instagram handle as well as being society. You can follow specifically the podcast at dystopian fiction current affairs on Insta. Um, so, yeah, follow us there. And we'd love to hear from you um, about all these lovely things that are going on. Is there anything else we need to say, Marsha? Do you think so? Excellent stuff. OK, well, thank you very much. I will stop recording. <laughs>